Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. G'day, g'day, thanks for your time in listening to Democracy Sausage, which comes to you each week from the ANU. I'm Mark Kenny, and with me, as always, is Dr. Maria Tafloga. And of course, we're both from the ANU, uh, Australia's National University. Hi there, Maria. Hello, Mark. I'm really thrilled uh, to be talking this week with one of Australia's most outstanding academics, Professor Ben Saul, who just last week took up his post as UN Special Rapporteur on the Protection of Human Rights and Countering Terrorism. Quite a time to be doing that. Professor Saul is also Chalice Chair of International Law at the University of Sydney. He's written 20 books. He's an Associate Fellow of the International Centre for Counterterrorism at The Hague and numerous other things. Ben Saul, welcome to Democracy Sausage. Thanks for having me, Mark. Pleased to be with you. It is quite a time uh, to be taking up this role. I guess it was in the works for some time before it got announced, but it's come at a time when those two issues, human rights and countering terrorism, couldn't be more salient. That's right. I mean, obviously, counterterrorism has been a a big feature for the last 20 years since 9-11. And States continue to make uh, all kinds of counter-terrorism laws uh, all the time. Uh, Many states are also fighting armed conflicts of various kinds against terrorists from uh, West Africa through to the the Middle East. Uh, So it is a a difficult time and and this is a a particularly uh, catastrophic conflict, I think, uh, for the protection of civilians as we've been seeing over over recent weeks. It may indeed be a, a catastrophic time for for both of the uh, the nations involved, or one of them's formerly a nation and one of them wants to be recognised as a nation, that being Palestine. But it's not a good time for Israel as well, and may prove to be a disastrous time for Israel, just as it is proving to be. Um, an existential crisis for for Gazans caught up in the middle of this. Um, They are subject to, there's two million of them in the Gaza Strip, Palestinians, and they are subject to, I guess, two things that are related. One is the attack, the bombardment, an aerial bombardment and our ground invasion, but also to a siege, uh, which is denying them access for the most part to the basics of life, water, food, uh, safe shelter, fuel, which is vital for, you know, for a whole range of things, not least being the generation of power to run hospitals and for, you know, ambulances and and for other things, for cooking and the like, given that uh, infrastructure has been absolutely hammered. I wonder if we could 
start really by talking about the legal basis of those two things. Uh, I know uh, the law of war necessarily is not necessarily your sort of specific specialty, but they are two separate things, aren't they? The the the, the campaign itself is whether Israel has a right a right to defend itself and whether this constitutes self defence um, in its attack on Hamas and its attempt to eliminate Hamas, and quite separately whether the siege of uh, of this territory with those harsh conditions has any basis in law. Yeah, a lot of issues in there, and let me start with international humanitarian law, which governs the conduct of hostilities once fighting breaks out. So regardless who started it, uh, who was an, uh, an aggressor or a, or a victim, uh, international humanitarian law applies and the, the rules apply equally to, to both sides. Uh, now, something like a, a siege or a, or a blockade of a territory uh, is a, a long established uh, and can be a lawful tactic of warfare, uh, but there are critical constraints on how uh, sieges can affect civilians. Uh, so if a territory is blockaded, there is always an obligation to allow the rapid and unimpeded flow of humanitarian relief and medicines uh, necessary to ensure the survival of a civilian population. That's not negotiable. You can never just shut down a border completely, impose, as the Israeli Defence Minister announced at the start of this campaign, uh, a complete siege, allowing no food, water, fuel, etc., cetera, uh, into the, the territory, uh, because that's just a, a disproportionate uh, impact upon civilians. Even if you're fighting a war of self-defence, uh, you can't fight that by starving enemy civilians on the other side. Uh, now, that used to be okay. I mean, in fact, uh, earlier uh, under the law of armed conflict, total siege, and uh, including if that starved civilians, uh, was permitted, actually. But over the years, governments around the world have, have realised that it's a, a minimum condition of our humanity, that you can't fight the other side uh, by uh, deliberately starving their civilians. And in fact, the modern law uh, also recognises deliberate starvation as a war crime. It's not just prohibited by the law. It also attracts criminal responsibility for those who impose it, including the military uh, and political leaderships. Uh, on the other side, um, in terms of the, the conduct of the fighting, the campaign uh, itself, there the rules um, uh, seem quite straightforward, but uh, obviously in, in their application, uh, there can be a, a lot of more difficult issues. Uh, I mean, very roughly, you cannot deliberately target civilians. Uh, you must only target military objectives. So that means fighters as well as military facilities, equipment, munitions, and, and so on. Um, if you are targeting uh, a legitimate military objective, you can't launch that attack, even if it is a military objective, if it would cause excessive civilian casualties relative to the military advantage. So that means you've got to weigh up the importance of the military target against how many civilians, property and, and people, injury and death, uh, would result from, uh, from that targeting. Uh, a third rule I'd mention, because that's also important in this campaign, uh, is that you can't launch uh, what we call an indiscriminate attack. So that means an attack where you, you might use a, a weapon or a method of warfare uh, which by its nature cannot distinguish between a military target uh, and civilians who might equally be struck. Uh, so a, a good example uh, is something like using very high 
uh, explosive munitions in a very confined, densely populated urban area uh, where you know civilians haven't all been able to, to, to evacuate. Uh, and in certain circumstances, even if you are trying to, to, to strike a, a military objective, you're likely to equally hit civilians in circumstances like that. So these are the, the rules which uh, both parties uh, are, are bound by. Uh, and uh, obviously, we've been seeing that play out in over 11,000 Israeli strikes uh, in the past month. That's really that's really interesting, Ben. I suppose I have two follow-ups, one that's a bit more technical and, and one that's a bit more general. And the first is, like, if I, if I understand it, like, when you're talking about military targets and their proximity to civilians, you know, if it if, is this correct, the correct understanding, like, if, it, if the target is deemed a legitimate military target and there are civilian casualties, like, they don't actually get counted as civilians, right? Like, they basically become collateral damage because the military target was deemed legitimate. Is that, is that like, some of the sort of technical basis for how these laws are actually operating, or am I have I got this sort of wrong? So it's not quite how it works. I mean, they they're they're absolutely still civilians, but the the international law of armed conflict tolerates some civilian casualties uh, in a in a strike on a on a legitimate military objective. So the question, the critical question, is uh, before launching that attack, based on the information that you have, and there are. Uh, what we call precautionary obligations to seek out uh, adequate information so that you uh, are targeting based on on the relevant facts. The, the critical question then is, uh, if you if you went ahead with that attack, would it cause uh, excessive or disproportionate civilian casualties? Now, that's not an easy rule to apply because it is uh, something of an abstract rule. I, I mean, it is weighing up how important is that particular military target? For example, how senior is a Hamas commander? Uh, how many Hamas uh, weapons or munitions are, are in that location uh, at that moment in time? How strategic is that location in terms of impeding uh, approaching Israeli forces and so on? And then you've got to weigh that up against uh, 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 what would be the impact on civilians. So how many civilians uh, are there? What's the value uh, and extent of, of civilian property? Uh, and of course, some civilian objects are, are special ones like hospitals, cultural property, uh, schools. Uh, all of that has to, to, to be in the mix as well when you're weighing up uh, how important is the military target relative to the, the anticipated civilian casualties. So, uh, you know, the law of armed conflict does allow civilians to be lawfully killed in certain circumstances. You cannot deliberately target them as such, uh, but they can be lawful casualties of a, of a proportionate military strike. Just before we go to your next question, I just want to stay with that one just for a sec. What about, I mean, you mentioned about, uh, in, and I think your former words before was um, if civilians haven't had a chance to uh, get out of the area. What about... Going to Maria's question, does it change the status of them if they choose not to leave, having been given what the aggressor or you know the the, the people launching the attack would say uh, was adequate warning? Does that change their status at all? Because that seems to be, in some ways, what Israel is arguing. Absolutely not. And international humanitarian law is a hundred percent crystal clear on this. Uh, I mean, a couple of rules are relevant. One is uh, an attacker must give warning where that is feasible and in some circumstances where, for example, the element of surprise is essential to the success of a military attack, you don't have to give a warning. But if you do, uh, that warning has to be effective 
uh, which means it has to uh, allow civilians sufficient time to safely move uh, out of out of harm's way. Now, if civilians don't do that for whatever reason, so it might be that they're uh, they've got a disability, or they're bedridden, or or they're in they're in hospital, or they've got you know five children and can't easily move, or there's no fuel and they they can't get transport to to, to move anywhere. Um, or they just voluntarily choose to stay for whatever reason, including uh, because they might think it's just not safe in the South or they've got friends or family down there and they, they know there's no food there. So what's the point? They're better set up uh, at home and, and people, you know, make decisions about, about their own safety and, and uh, we, have to, we have to respect that. Uh, if people don't move, they don't heed warnings, they are still civilians doesn't somehow mean they're not innocent, doesn't somehow make them Hamas fighters. It doesn't somehow mean you can't count uh, them for the purpose of applying uh, the, the the proportionality rule in, in military targeting. Now, of course, that makes it harder for an attacking force. But of course, that's the price of being a responsible state in a modern international community that respects basic human rights. Uh, civilians don't lose their uh, civilian protection just because uh, it's inconvenient for a, a military attacker. Now, I mentioned also other rules which are, which are absolutely relevant here as well. Hamas has obligations not to locate its military uh, equipment and fighters in and amongst civilians. Uh, it also has obligations to help to ensure the safety of its own population, including by helping to evacuate them uh, where that's necessary or, or to, to provide bomb shelters and uh, ways of, of helping civilians to, to stay safe. I mean, it's pretty clear Hamas hasn't been fulfilling those obligations. But you also have to come at that in the context of the reality of urban warfare. I mean, most of Gaza is an urban area and therefore Hamas has to fight from somewhere. It absolutely shouldn't be setting up, you know, rocket firing positions next to schools and it shouldn't be building tunnels underneath hospitals. I mean, these are some of the allegations that have that have been made by the by the Israelis. Uh, but they've got to fight from somewhere in an in an urban area. And they've got to do that in a way which minimizes the, the impact on, on civilians. Uh, but it doesn't mean they're not allowed to fight at all uh, because they are in, in an urban warfare setting setting intermingled necessarily uh, amongst civilian buildings uh, and civilians who've, who've remained there. I mean, no, that's that's very helpful. And I, and I, th- I think it's actually useful for, for listeners to sort of understand what the, I suppose, uh, legal basis for these definitions that will be, you know, that if it ever faces a, a court, how they would actually be adjudicated, which um, clearly drive the the, the, the discourse of, of some actors versus uh, the more human way of understanding what a civilian is, right? That's not a legal definition. And I suppose, you know, you've kind of already alluded to this around some of the, the actions of, of Hamas, um, you know, and we shouldn't forget that this all started when they basically went on a, uh, like killing, a, a, spree. a killing spree. Yeah, like, you know, a, a, effectively a Monday um, pogrom of, of extraordinary and terrifying violence. Um, you know, like Hamas is not the same class of actor as the Israeli state, um, you know, I think I think everyone kind of understands that. So, I mean, I suppose in terms of the realities of how these conflicts play out and how these decisions are going to be practically implemented, how, how does that difference in these actors, their motives, they're clearly both playing to their, their strengths, you know, like how does that actually um, play out on the ground and what's a useful way, I suppose, of thinking about what is actually kind of going on and how it relates to the law of war? 
Well, what I would emphasize is that international humanitarian law is designed to address all forms of of fighting uh, and a whole spectrum of different actors. Uh, That includes non-state actors, whether you call them terrorists or rebels or or insurgents or or militants. Uh, And there there is, as you suggest, a a whole spectrum of of different kinds of actors in armed conflict, as there is on the state side. I mean, there are, you know, responsible states who who, uh, very carefully apply the, the, the rules of armed conflict. And then there are, there are states which are completely rogue and commit far worse violence than even terrorist actors do because they've got the capacity, uh, the resources uh, uh, to, to, to do that. And, and, you know, they've got the instrument of a, of a state at their at their disposal. So, so I don't know that we should necessarily think of, um, uh, you know, terrorist organisations, you know, as so far apart from, from state actors necessarily. I mean, remember when modern international humanitarian law was was written, you know, in the 1949 Geneva Conventions. Uh, These were treaties written by the states which had emerged from the Second World War. This is a war which killed 80 million people. It involved facing down Nazism and fascism and all kinds of very nasty guerrilla insurgent campaigns as well. With, with devastating impacts on civilians. So I don't think people should uh, imagine for a moment that somehow international humanitarian law is, is unrealistic, it doesn't take into account the full spectrum of, of security threats that the world has faced. I mean, the world has been in a worse spot than we, than, than we are at the moment, right? Uh, and, and those rules were very deliberately written uh, as a kind of delicate balance between, on the one hand, absolutely allowing militaries to fight and win and use a a very broad spectrum of violence to to achieve that. Uh, And on the other hand, to uh, ensure there's a balance to to protect completely innocent civilians, uh, including civilians who are deemed enemy populations and uh, and in a sectarian or or polarised political framework where there's lots of political pressure not to respect the rules. I mean, we see that on both sides. Uh, a, a ton of inflammatory and uh, uh, even genocidal language emerging from senior leaders on both sides. Both sides of this conflict, and under those conditions, of course, it, impl- it places enormous strain uh, on respect for international humanitarian law. Um, you know, Israel does have a, a very professional group of uh, international humanitarian lawyers. They've been considering these issues of counterterrorism and counterinsurgency for, for, for many, many years. But, you know, militaries take different views on what the law requires and, and how flexible the law is in, in, in interpretation. Uh, and, of course, there is some boundary pushing going on there, there as well. Uh, I mean, one of the difficulties is, you know, without knowing more about the information available to Israel in each particular strike, it is really hard as an external observer to draw conclusions about whether that strike uh, was lawful or not. Uh, at the same time, there are at least some strikes on uh, uh, the Jabalia refugee camp, on on hospitals, uh, ambulances, which do see which do seem very hard to square with the uh, uh, careful application of the proportionality and or indiscriminate attack rules, which I uh, which I mentioned earlier, because there does seem to be a toleration 
for civilian casualties, which most other responsible uh, militaries around the world, including the Australian Armed Forces, uh, would just not tolerate on the battlefield. Well, it's an interesting point. Would they tolerate them? Were they faced with the same, what they would regard as existential circumstances? That's a, that, that's kind of an unknown in a way. Um, we don't face that. We haven't faced those sort of circumstances, uh, but but we might at some. Well, you know, at least theoretically, it, it, were we to do so, would we be pushing the boundaries? And that, of course, raises also the question. You talk about the uh, you know, the law to which these states should be responsive, should have respect. But are they signatories to the uh, ICC? Uh, Israel or yeah, Israel and the U. Well, if take the Israel and the US, for example, which is in a sense. Um, uh, a very strong sponsor, guarantor, protector of Israel. Yeah, so uh, neither Israel nor the United States are parties to the International Criminal Court, but they are absolutely parties to the International Humanitarian Law Treaties, so the Geneva Conventions yeah, of 1949, yeah. which include uh, extensive war crimes provisions and obligations on all states to investigate and prosecute or extradite uh, suspected war, war criminals. Um, so, you know, the, the international humanitarian law is universal. Um, uh, whether the, the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction to prosecute is a, is a separate question. Palestine is a state party to the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, and that's the basis on which there has been an open investigation by the prosecutor of that court since 2015. Uh, so it's a, it's a long-running investigation. And what that means is that I mean, just in terms of how the court's jurisdiction work. Works. It has jurisdiction over crimes committed on the territory of a state party or by nationals of that state party. Uh, so that means anything in in uh, committed in Gaza or the West Bank, or anything committed by Palestinian nationals, i.e., uh, Hamas fighters crossing into Israeli territory, is also covered by the the court's jurisdiction. Uh, I mean, ju- just back to the first part of your question uh, about, you know, what would what would we all do in a in an existential crisis? Uh, I mean, I'd challenge that assertion uh, in, on these facts to, to start with. I mean, Hamas is not an existential threat to Israel. Israel has one of the largest militaries in the region. It's uh, backed unconditionally uh, by the U.S. militarily. It's got nuclear weapons. The U.S. has two aircraft carriers sitting off the coast of of Israel. Hamas has some tens of thousands of fighters. It's got basic small arms and light weapons. It's got uh, significant numbers of fairly indiscriminate rockets, which can't do a lot of damage in terms of serious conventional warfare to Israel. Uh, So when we talk of asymmetrical conflict, that cuts both ways, right? I mean, yes, Hamas uh, uses terrorist methods and uh, and that makes it difficult uh, for Israel to, to, to counter them. But on the other hand, Israel, of course, has overwhelmingly, overwhelming military uh, superiority. So this isn't an existential crisis. This isn't like, you know, whether Hitler would conquer uh, England in the early days of, uh, of, the, of the Second World War. It's, it's, it's not that order of, uh, of magnitude. Uh, and therefore, this, you know, th- these kinds of arguments that international humanitarian law or human rights law is, uh, is, is, is too restrictive, it doesn't la- allow you to, to protect yourself. Uh, I, I mean, I just don't believe that for a, for a second. And I go back to the point I made earlier that these are rules made by states themselves in the aftermath of a conflict uh, where everything was on the table in terms of uh, the most terrible methods of violence and the, the, the most atrocious scale of violence imaginable. And yet, they committed to this balance of the rules that we have today. 
Interesting point. Look, let's take a quick break there and come back in a moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome back. We were talking just before the break about international law and the 1949 Geneva Conventions and Human Rights. Um, Ben, just a sort of a question without notice here, being a bit more historical about it, but did that in 1949, to which everyone signed up, did that immediately render a couple of the decisive decisions which ended the Second World War to have been, would they would have been um, massive breaches of human rights? I'm talking about the, the bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Under the current law, uh, of course, uh, I mean, not only uh, the atomic bombing of Japanese cities, where a very deliberate decision was made to essentially exterminate Japanese civilians to end the war more quickly, uh, that, again, wasn't an existential moment for the West because Japan was on its knees at that point. Uh, Michael Walter, a a great US moral philosopher, has has dealt with this at at length and and makes the point that, you know, these bombs were dropped to speed up the end of the war, but not to win it. Uh, I mean, it was clear that the war was over at at, at that point. Now, the price to American lives would have been much greater. I mean, fighting Japan conventionally, uh, estimates suggest, you know, this could have been uh, millions more casualties of both combatants as well as Japanese civilians, you know, going island to island. Uh, taking over Japan. So that that was part of the calculus uh, as well. I'd also mentioned the the firebombing uh, of European cities and and, and Tokyo and, and and elsewhere on both sides during that that conflict. Uh, I mean these kinds of attacks would be clearly treated as unlawful indiscriminate attacks uh, under the current law because even if you were targeting it, you know, let's say some kind of uh, shipyard or military facility within a, a big European city or a big Japanese city. The, the, the crude technology of bombs in those days uh, was was really so poor that you were you you knew you got you were going to hit whole swathes of civilian residential areas as well. Uh, I mean, back in the day, the, U, the U.S. bombing command took it as success if you hit a target 20% of the time within 300 metres of the of the target. I mean, that just shows you that how crude these weapons were. Now, if you fast forward to today, I mean, this has, of course, been an argument Hamas has, has made in the past. It said, look, you know, we don't have precision-guided GPS munitions or, or aircraft or, or cruise missiles or anything like this. We've just got relatively crude uh, indiscriminate rockets in the way that you had indiscriminate bombs dropped from a great height uh, during the during the Second World War. So, you know, we're fighting just like just like you guys did uh, in the past. Under the current law, you know, that's that's not an excuse, right? Lack of technology, uh, even when, of course, it's impossible for Hamas really to fight any other way because they're under total siege and, and blockade and the, the the power imbalance is is so asymmetric. That's still unlawful uh, because it, it risks indiscriminate attack and, uh, of course, disproportionate civilian casualties. 
I mean, one one point I would make about Hamas fighting is that, of course, not all of its methods are terrorist in the sense that we understand terrorism to be deliberately targeting civilians. Uh, I mean, in in the October 7 attacks, over 300 Israeli soldiers were killed as well, right? That's just conventional warfare and and combat, uh, and that is not necessarily unlawful under international humanitarian law, and it's it's certainly not a war crime under uh, international humanitarian law. So I do think, uh, you know, this is an issue worldwide when uh, labelling or legal designation of groups as as terrorist um, uh, occurs. There is a a live debate about how we define terrorism uh, and whether that uh, should be limited to deliberate attacks on civilians and exclude, you know, lawful methods of warfare under, under international law. So is that actually currently not um, judiciable? Like, I can't remember. Justiciable. Justiciable, thank you. Because there is actually not a consensus on what precisely terrorism is? Yeah, so it's, uh, well, so firstly, uh, countries have been trying to define terrorism for over 100 years without without success. Uh, I mean, there's a a draft treaty before the UN General Assembly in New York that's been sitting there for the last 20 years because states can't agree, including on this issue of how you distinguish combat in warfare uh, from uh, attacks on on civilians. Now, a bunch of Western states, including Australia, have designated Hamas, all of it, military and civilian, uh, as a a terrorist organisation under their domestic laws and uh, under the Australian definition uh, and and some of our, our allies, there is no distinction made between combat and uh, deliberately murdering civilians. Uh, so any violence by a non-state actor for political reasons against a foreign government or civilians is terrorism under uh, under Australian law. So, you know, rebels in Syria fighting Assad, you know, they're terrorists under Australian law in the same way that uh, Hamas fighting Israel is, is regarded as terrorism. Because this is a uh, what we call a non-international armed conflict, uh, because Hamas is a non-state actor fighting fighting Israel, they even if they fight in accordance with international humanitarian law, so they don't kill civilians, they only target Israeli soldiers, uh, in, in those kinds of conflicts, you don't get what we call the combatants' immunity from foreign domestic criminal law for lawful acts of war. Uh, So what that does mean is that uh, under Israeli or Australian law, even if they only target Israeli soldiers, that is still the crime of terrorism and and Israel has a right to put them on trial for the crime of terrorism. If it were an international armed conflict, you know, let's say the state of Palestine uh, is is a a state, instead of fighting Hamas, you are fighting the Palestinian Authority, which is the the state uh, armed force of, of, uh, of that country. Uh, in those circumstances, it, it's just like you know Australia fighting uh, German soldiers or Japanese soldiers in the Second World War. Lawful acts of killing give you prisoner of war status. You can't be put on, put on trial for war crimes. You can't be put on trial under German or, or Japanese law for what normally in peacetime would be murder. But being a soldier uh, in an interstate war, you get that, that privilege to fight uh, without consequences under domestic uh, criminal law. Can we come back to the um, issue of the, the siege? Um, the, the logic of that, uh, according to Israel, is to deny Hamas, um, particularly if we think about fuel, but also there's you know been very little water get in, very little food, medicines, as you say, and a number of other things. Uh, there have been 
there's been a trickle of aid getting in there, you know, since largely due to international pressure. It seems if Israel had its way, there wasn't going to be any of that even. But they haven't let any fuel in. They say that fuel ends up being uh, used by Hamas, therefore against them, and that they're therefore fueling their enemy. Is that is that a, 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 a does that then justify it under the uh, the, the broader power of self defence that Israel is asserting? So the law uh, addresses precisely those kinds of concerns. Um, Firstly, at the border, when humanitarian relief is coming in, and and by the way, it's not just Israel, it's also other states, including Egypt, which uh, must allow humanitarian relief in. But at the border, international humanitarian law says you can impose uh, legitimate security controls by like checking trucks to make sure they're not bringing in weapons or, or, or any kind of military equipment or, or contraband that's absolutely fine and 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 that that happens already secondly humanitarian relief must be provided by independent impartial international humanitarian organizations uh, so in a context like that that generally means the international committee of the red cross the united nations relief agencies and their partners who they who they use on the ground so this is precisely designed to avoid you know partisan groups uh, saying they're humanitarian actors but really they're you know sympathizing with one side of the conflict or other in which case you get much greater risks of diversion of aid uh, for military purposes i mean uh, whether it's fuel or food i mean you know the, the, the same concern is there. I mean, you could be feeding Hamas fighters if you if you send food into Gaza too. But we don't say you can starve everybody just so Hamas can't can't eat. Uh, I mean, fuel is in the same basket. Uh, again, you've got controls on on how it's delivered and and where it's delivered to and and who's using it. There's always a risk of diversion. I, I mean, you can never be a hundred percent sure uh, that it won't end up, you know, fueling a, a, a rocket or or whatever. Uh, but if you don't do that, I mean, I mean, what's the what what's the the consequence? It means hospitals can't run and civilians die uh, because of this risk that maybe Hamas will get fuel for some for some rockets. Uh, that's just wildly disproportionate, uh, and it goes back to to what I said earlier about over the centuries, starvation, total siege uh, was fine. You know, think of the, the 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 Middle Ages. Think of many kind of biblical stories, some of which the uh, Prime Minister of Israel has uh, has cited in in recent weeks, uh, where exterminating enemy civilians was considered fine. Well, it's it's clearly not fine, uh, and these kinds of arguments, are, I think, should be strongly rejected. Um, uh, I, I think it is a positive thing that many countries, including Australia, uh, have been urging the Israelis to respect international humanitarian law to allow humanitarian relief in. Uh, I know the the US uh, Secretary of State has expressed some frustration that Israel just isn't listening uh, to the US and it, it doesn't feel like it can do anything more. That's Look, what I- happens on an ongoing basis, it seems to me. I mean, you know, if we think about all the settlements over over years, uh, every time a US Secretary of State visits, uh, every time there's a flare-up on these things, we get, you know, the sort of tut-tutting from the White House, from, from the State Department, uh, wanting to reassert the commitment to the two-state solution and so forth, but it doesn't actually change anything. And we're seeing that now play out in this in extremists, really, in this uh, critical set of circumstances of a war. So... I'm not all that surprised. And the US, 
the US suggesting it, you know, it doesn't have any more influence is clearly not true. Uh, I mean, Israel is receiving large amounts of money and military aid and equipment from the United States. Um, the US Secretary of Defense uh, has said our aid, our provision of weapons to Israel is unconditional. They have imposed no constraints right. on how Israel uses those those weapons. So if the US wanted to do more, it could. Now there are political reasons uh, in domestic US politics why why that why that doesn't. Can I happen. ask you? Can I ask you? Is there any is there any legal dimension to that? You say the US has uh, given these arms unconditionally and 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 made it clear about that. Does that? imply any liability for the US? Yeah, a number of points. Uh, one is under uh, common Article 1 of the four Geneva Conventions, so articles the same across all four of the treaties, all states have an obligation to ensure respect for international humanitarian law by other states, including when you're not involved uh, in the in the conflict. Uh, now, that's an obligation uh, which means that if you have a relationship of special influence with a, with a, a belligerent to the conflict uh, and you've got levers to pull, absolutely you must do that to the, the full extent of your capacity. But secondly, and, and this is uh, even, even stricter, I think, all states are obliged not to aid and abet the commission of war crimes. Uh, and there is... Uh, uh, individual criminal responsibility for complicity in war crimes. Uh, so if you know that one of your allies is, is likely committing war crimes and you continue to provide weapons to them, which might contribute to the commission of those war crimes, then that itself is a form of, uh, of criminal responsibility under international law. Uh, I saw in Australia there's a, there's a court proceeding launched just yesterday uh, to try to get more transparency around what kinds of weapons uh, Australia itself has been exporting to to Israel, uh, because there, there's there's really no transparency around that. Uh, I mean, the number of permits issued is on the public record, but we know we never know anything about what those permits are for. Now, it could be completely innocuous. It could be you know clothes and and boots and and radios or something, uh, or it could be weapon systems. In which case, if it's at that end of the spectrum. Uh, there are then real risks. Also for Australia, because we are a party to what's called the Arms Trade Treaty, which is a fairly recent convention, uh, which requires us as a matter of law not to export weapons to a country where we know they would be used in the commission of war crimes. Uh, and even if we don't know that they that they would be used, there's still a, a due diligence obligation to weigh up the risks of uh, whether they might be used in, in that way and not to proceed with export uh, if they would be so used. So, okay, that's that's actually really um, quite fascinating. And, and one of the things that we sort of touched on a few minutes ago was this principle of, of self-defence. Essentially, what is... What is the legal framing of, of this doctrine and how does it relate to the current conflict? So the, the right of self-defence is a, is a very ancient right of states. It's, uh, it's spelled out in Article 51 of the United Nations Charter of 1945. Uh, and conventionally, the understanding is if uh, a country faces an armed attack from another country, it has a right of self-defence uh, to halt and repel uh, that, uh, that attack. In exercising self-defence, you can only do what is necessary and proportionate uh, in repelling that uh, initial attack. So you can't go beyond it uh, and do non-defensive things like annexing territory or punishing 
uh, a foreign state or plundering its resources. I mean, these are these are things which have happened in uh, all kinds of recent uh, conflicts, Congo, Uganda, in the, the 90s and 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 elsewhere. Uh, so, so, so that part of the law is is pretty clear. What's more difficult is that there has been a, a really uh, uh, unstable debate about self-defence against non-state terrorist actors since 9-11. There's a group of Western states, and uh, Australia's uh, part of this group, which says uh, there is also a right not only to use self-defence against an attack by another state, but also an attack by uh, an autonomous or independent non-state armed group emanating from some kind of foreign territory, even if another state is not involved in in sending or controlling uh, the activities of of that that armed group. And so the way the US and and Australia put it is that if a foreign state is unable or unwilling to suppress a terrorist group mounting attacks from its territory, uh, then the victim state can itself go and uh, attack that that group and and, uh, defend against its ongoing attacks. Now, why I say that's controversial uh, is because the International Court of Justice in the Israel Wall Advisory Opinion uh, in 2004 insisted that the law had had not yet changed post 9-11. It said roughly the same thing in, in some subsequent cases as well. One of the reasons for that is because most of the world doesn't yet seem to accept that there is a right of self-defence against non-state actors. So the the non-aligned movement, which is a group of uh, about 120 states, so a clear majority uh, in the international community, has been very sceptical of that widening of self-defence because they see it as a a real risk of escalation uh, of use of military force by powerful states against fairly weak and vulnerable states uh, who who, uh, may not have certain capacities to, to deal with uh, terrorist groups. Uh, so this is playing out in, in the current conflict. So a group of, of uh, principally European and uh, states and, and the US have said Israel has a right of self-defense. Uh, a group of other states have refused to, to accept that position. And this is why there was an impasse over UN Security Council and General Assembly resolutions on, on reference to, to self-defense. The other part of this story, just, just quickly, is that in the 2004 Israel wall decision, Part of what the court said there was that because Israel is an occupying power in the West Bank in in the circumstances of that case, self-defence is not relevant because it's already a territory that Israel has uh, extensive military control over. Uh, The law of occupation, which is part of international humanitarian law, uh, indeed gives occupying powers very extensive security powers to ensure its own military security in occupied territory. Uh, So nobody's saying Israel has no right to protect its citizens. The the question is whether the source of that power is the international right of self-defence or just the law of occupation and the security powers already granted over occupied territory. Now, why that's still relevant in Gaza is because the United Nations uh, regards Gaza still as occupied territory despite the Israeli withdrawal uh, in 2005 because they say um, Israel still exercises such extensive control from afar, a kind of remote control at the border over everything in, 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 that happens in, Israel, in Gaza, you know, its, its economy, the movement of people, um, uh, everything that, that gets in and out of the territory, air, land and sea uh, under, under Israeli control, that that's still occupation. Now, Quite a few military lawyers uh, in governments disagree with that approach, and it is quite a, a transformative or, or radical approach. 
But if you take that approach, then you, you do recognize that Israel has uh, security powers to, to respond to Hamas's attack. Really fascinating. And of course, the law of occupation has its places, its limitations on the occupying power as well. And one of those limitations is that it can't simply colonize territory that it is temporarily occupying, correct? That's right. So uh, the notion of occupation is a kind of trusteeship relationship. So it sounds a bit a bit strange that you know you're an you're an enemy force controlling a, a foreign population, but you have to act for their benefit, right? Because you've displaced their government. Uh, and, and therefore, you, you you have to fulfill all of the obligations of a, a government to keep regular civilian life going. I mean, that, that means law and order, a functioning justice system, the provision of social services and all of the humanitarian necessities of, of life. So it is a, a very substantial burden. Uh, and as you say, I mean, it, it, it is a temporary relationship. Uh, it doesn't allow you to uh, uh, colonize or annex foreign territory and claim it as your your, your own sovereign territory, as uh, as Israel has done in East Jerusalem, which you know which is part of the the occupied West Bank, but Israel claims it to be Israeli sovereign territory proper. Likewise with Syria's Golan Heights, which Israel, but also with the set with the settlements as well, with with uh, lots and lots of settlements right through the West Bank. Yeah, so we we think there are probably about. 700,000 or so settlers in the in the West Bank. Uh, now, uh, Israel has not formally annexed those areas as sovereign Israeli territory, but what the uh, International Court of Justice said in 2004 uh, was that uh, this is kind of a de facto annexation because by building this massive security barrier, uh, not along the Green Line, which is the presumptive future border between uh, a Palestinian and, a, and an Israeli state, but instead to encircle and protect a, a whole series of Israeli settlements. Uh, that's a, and, and arming them as well. Yeah, effectively prejudicing uh, a two-state solution, making it impossible for the Palestinians yeah. ever to exercise self-determination over the full extent of their territory. Yeah. Um, just uh, We're probably getting close to running out of time, but um, just finally wanted to get your uh, response to, um, and, and in a way we've covered some of this, but uh, I guess it's true to say legal academic colleague Alan Dershowitz uh, in the US is sort of a, a mercurial character. He claims to be a, a Democrat-aligned uh, human rights academic lawyer, um, but he's also uh, defended Trump on, on one or two occasions. And recently he has said that, and I was astonished to read this. I mean, I saw, I saw, it, I saw him doing it as a piece to camera. He has said that, that the people of Gaza voted for Hamas and therefore they should be regarded as supporters of Hamas, end of story. Whereas, he says, the people slaughtered in the kibbutzes of, uh, uh, on October 7 were probably progressives. They were probably anti-Netanyahu, who two-state anti-settlement people, and that uh, you know we shouldn't be shedding tears over these Palestinians in Hamas. I mean, that strikes me as uh, having, one, no basis in in international law, which is pretty astonishing for a legal scholar, but two, um, morally just an absolutely depraved position. So, so morally, it, it, I agree 100%, and it, uh, it, it echoes exactly the same arguments that many terrorist groups have made over the years, right? So if you think of French Algeria, uh, I mean, France Fanon and others, uh, their, their argument always was, you know, French uh, civilian settlers in Algerian territory 
are part of the apparatus of the, the occupation and colonialism. And so we draw no distinction between their moral blameworthiness uh, and those of you know French soldiers uh, on the on the battlefield, so we can just kill everybody. Al Qaeda, you know Osama bin Laden said, you know American taxpayers uh, finance the the U.S. military, uh, so we can we can murder them, right? I mean, there's 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 no there's no distinction. Israel, by the way, does make that argument already. Uh, I mean, r- recall it. Uh, uh, it murdered uh, a Hamas financier in Dubai over a decade ago using falsified Australian passports, by the way, um, because it said, you know, if you if you finance terror, you're part of the organisation, right? Well, you know, this is collapsing the distinction between civilians and military personnel on the battlefield, and it's a recipe for, for total war and total annihilation of, of civilian populations. What international law says about that is pretty clear. It says, look, if a civilian does take a direct part in the fighting, they make themselves targetable. So any civilian who picks up a a weapon in an armed conflict on on either side and and starts uh, fighting, they become legitimate military targets under the the law of armed conflict. But you cannot target, and this is absolutely clear, you cannot target all of the civilians in the background who undoubtedly provide all kinds of indirect support to the war effort. Uh, I mean, think of uh, Australia during the the Second World War, you, you had people all over the country, you know, making weapons, uh, performing logistics for, for, for the military uh, effort, people recruiting, propagandizing, financing. I, I mean, none of that is direct participation on the battlefield. And so, uh, yes, in war, we know we mobilize our, our whole societies for the, for the war effort sometimes, but it's only if you're actually engaged in combat uh, can you be militarily targeted. Otherwise, there's just, there's just no distinction between civilians yeah. and, and military people. Yeah, yeah. It just astonished me when I saw it because I thought that he's effectively legitimising the, the very logic of the people who came over the fence at Gaza and started killing uh, people at a, at, a, at, a, at a rock concert, at a, um, a music festival. Um, yeah, it's the same logic, really. That's right. And, and what, what I'm very concerned about is the the level of uh, high-level inflammatory dehumanising speech coming from uh, very senior Israeli political and military leaders. So the Prime Minister cites a passage from the Old Testament uh, where God commands the Jews to exterminate everybody on the other side, including, and they specifically mention, all women, children, men, animals, I mean, whole-scale annihilation of, a, of another uh, another civilization. Uh, we've seen uh, other senior ministers and political lead- uh, and, and military leaders uh, calling for another Nakba, which is uh, what the Palestinians understand to be the catastrophe of 1948, uh, which involved, along with um, uh, 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 movements of, of Palestinians to get out of the way of the war, uh, deliberate forced expulsion by the, uh, mm. the the Jewish independence fighters. Um, uh, you know, we've heard calls to erase Gaza from the face of the earth. We've uh, heard calls for nuclear annihilation uh, of Gaza from a serving minister uh, in the government. I mean, to my mind, some of this speech is direct and public incitement to genocide. I don't think there's yet any kind of organised state policy of deliberately uh, destroying, uh, physically destroying Gazans. But this is the kind of early warning type speech we should absolutely be concerned about. And I haven't seen, frankly, Western leaders condemning that kind of speech, which I, which I find just extraordinary. Uh, I mean, it's one thing to, to prompt Israel for more 
humanitarian relief quite gently in our foreign minister and prime minister's public statements. But this kind of speech should be strongly denounced by our political leadership, because if you don't do that, uh, then you're, you're, you're tacitly uh, accepting that this is an acceptable part of the political discourse. And Maria, I suppose we know this is a highly politi- politically charged uh, environment. I mean, we've been talking about the legal basis of a number of these things, and uh, and and that is absolutely critical, of course. Uh, but there's a whole political dimension that that sort of exists awkwardly alongside it, sometimes overlapping with it, and sometimes not. Um, there'd be many people who m- might be listening to this discussion, thinking that in some way we're glossing over atrocities um, enacted on October 7 or indeed before on many occasions um, by terrorists, by, you know, by Hamas and other terrorist groups. We're not doing that. No, I mean, I think that's actually a really important point because, I mean, a lot of the discourses that Ben has just pointed to coming out of political elites in Israel, military elites in Israel, uh, are equally being said by political and military elites um, out of Hamas. Um, and And it's absolutely true to say that this conflict exists in a negative feedback loop of mutual dehumanization, yeah, right? Like well it doesn't exist in a in a vacuum, and um, it's actually it's actually very difficult to determine where one should start the analysis, right? At, at which date, because mm. because the nature of this conflict, in in some ways, is actually extremely simple. You have two groups of people that want to live on the same bit of land, but the actual bit about getting um, a short term through to a medium term plan to a long term solution is incredibly complex for multiple reasons. But at the heart of it is this negative feedback loop of mutual dehumanization. That's right, and I think it's also true to say that um, that I think history will show that the truest friends of of Israel will be the people who were counselling the um, the maintenance of law uh, and um, and and a moral code as well as a legal code, legal behaviour and 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 ethically and morally defensible behaviour, and also who will be advocating that Israel go about prosecuting the protection of of itself in a way in which it uh, will enhance its long term security. And at the moment. Um, I think it's fair to say there are many, many more recruits being made of uh, haters of Israel inside Gaza by by the, what what feels like um, carpet bombing to them. Um, and uh, um, yeah, yeah. What's the long term tale of that for for Israel? You you wouldn't think it, it it's in Israel's longer term interest. So you know they need to be they need to be much more deft. It seems to me uh, in the way in which they go about addressing this threat. Yeah, and I mean, I think there's been a lot of um, discussion around um, why Hamas has undertaken this, um, these atrocities in the first place, which is to provoke exactly this kind of reaction. And I mean, I think there there are sort of a few things here. Like one, uh, Israel's behaviour at the moment or its response is part of a sort of a, a chain of a different policy setting from the early 90s, for example principally by the Benjamin Netanyahu's governments, right, over time, which is which has taken a different route away from the Oslo Accords um, as one. Mm. And 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 secondly is that the, the structure and dynamics of domestic politics in the sort of traditional allies of Israel 
is structurally different to how it might have been 20 years ago or 30 years ago and the the place of the Islamic world it's 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 diplomatic weight its position has changed as well since 9/11 uh you know because we we are actually living in an era of disorder and dis- mm. and disruption and so all of these things have changed the calculus about how these things will play out and the actual effects um and i and that's ex- it's not surprising that that is really disturbing to a lot of um, diaspora communities, Jewish diaspora communities around the way this debate has been conducted. Um, and I suppose the, more, the, the greater visibility of the fury of other, uh, you know, basically of Muslim diaspora groups in, in countries like ours. Yeah, and there's a lot of resistance also from Israelis, moderate Israelis, to this to this current government. Um, obviously, they're in a in a, in a crisis situation right. at the moment. But I, uh, you know, Biden has apparently said to Netanyahu that he uh, thinks he's right at the end of his shelf life, and there is a wide expectation from reading the Israeli press that. Um, uh, the, the government won't last, and, and Netanyahu has his own demons to face legally, as well as exactly. answering for the catastrophic failure of intelligence uh, on on October seven. And he's one of the only people who hasn't taken any responsibility for that. And exactly, he's the prime minister. And and I think that's actually an important point: is that the the nature of the debate on the ground in Israel is actually far more complex than it obviously yes. is here, because of the nature of diaspora communities. Um, and how they relate to what's actually happening in in the home territory, and, 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 and we shouldn't forget, right? Like this this crisis hasn't come out of a vacuum. You know, Israel is a state that's been to the polls five times in in as many years or, or less, mm. where where people have been weekly protesting in in thousands of numbers for for ten months, where people from the security services and the in the military have basically gone on strike, like you know Benjamin Netanyahu's like. Uh, like policy of essentially ignoring this conflict whilst trying to create normalization agreements. Yeah, it was uns- like to be to put it in game theoretic terms, an unstable equilibria. And and something was going to happen, whether or not it was this specific set of, you know, truly horrific and horrifying attacks that have sparked this or, or, or a more typical, um, uh, like I suppose, intifada response. It doesn't, in some ways, it doesn't really matter. This was not a stable policy mm. approach. Yes, much to change. Ben Saul, thank you so much for, uh, for taking us through the, the legal basis of this, the history of it and where, where it sits. It's a, uh, it's a complex um, set of concepts, I suppose, for people to get their heads around and it's it been really great just hearing you explain them so well and uh, we, of course, all watch this conflict with, um, with, with a degree of horror because it doesn't look like there's a great deal, as Maria was just saying, a great deal of subtlety of thought going into a lot of these things. Thanks, Mark. And if I can make just a, a few brief concluding comments. By all means. I'd agree with you 100% that there has been genocidal speech on the other side from not only Hamas, but Hezbollah and Iran as well. And that story, I think, is is well known. And uh, one way you can legally characterise parts of the, the October 7 attacks is as a deliberate uh, intention to destroy part of the, the Jewish people, along with a, a bunch of war crimes, murder, hostage taking, uh, et cetera. I mean, I think one of the reasons why uh, most of the legal debate is focusing on Israel right now is because what Hamas did is is straightforward. I mean, th- those are just straight up war crimes. Nobody's, nobody's really uh, contesting that. Um, uh, on the um, uh, root causes uh, you, you alluded to, I think that's a really important uh, issue, which is kind of overlooked in the current emphasis on the humanitarian situation and the, the live combat and, and all of the suffering that's that's going on. But 
that the UN Secretary General was was dead right to say Hamas did not rise uh, in a in a vacuum, uh, and indeed the the UN global counter uh, counterterrorism uh, strategy, which all states, including Israel, signed up to, uh, agrees that one of the root causes of terrorist violence is uh, prolonged unresolved conflict, uh, serious human rights abuses, uh, systemic uh, discrimination, uh, dehumanization of, uh, of people. And if you think about those kinds of factors, they've all been present uh, in Israel and Palestine for many, many decades. Uh, and I think what we're seeing is a, is a culmination, entirely predictable, uh, of the failure of the international community uh, to force the parties to a permanent, peaceful settlement. Not just a negotiated settlement, which implies that it's just a political free-for-all where, where whoever has the most power you know, gets what, what they want, uh, but a settlement uh, according to the principles of international law. Uh, and that includes uh, the fulfilment of the right of the Palestinian people to self-determination, uh, to, to control their own political future uh, and control all of their lands, not, you know, cutting out the, the settlements, which, which Israel wants to, to, to keep. And on the other side, ensuring that uh, Israel has security and isn't being destabilised by some of its neighbours or, or, or some of these extreme armed uh, armed groups. Uh, and I think we've been, we've been just obviously terrible uh, at resolving that side of things. Um, uh, you know, the US is the critical actor here. It, it clearly has been pro-Israel for many, many decades. I mean, there's no other way to to, to read its uh, approach. I mean, it tries to be a peacemaker. It tries to be an honest broker. But, you know, how can it be when it's providing unconditional weapons uh, to one side and uh, and not doing much to force the, ha- the hand of the uh, the Israelis. Uh, a final point just on Israeli politics. I mean, I was I was there in Israel in December last year during these uh, these debates about judicial reform and so on. I think we've got to put that uh, in the context of yes, uh, great protests by Israelis about changes to their Supreme Court uh, and protections primarily for Israelis. But on the other hand, you've got the complete collapse of uh, the left in Israeli politics, the complete collapse of any kind of serious uh, peace movement uh, with political heft uh, in Israel. And that tells you that most Israelis have been fine with uh, a kind of perpetual military occupation, denial of self-determination called out by the International Court of Justice, the the, the, the condemnation of settlements, even by the UN Security Council, uh, and, and there hasn't been any kind of serious domestic constituency as uh, Israeli politics has lurched dramatically to the right. Uh, and, and I think this is part of the, the story of how we've arrived at where we are today. It may well be. I was reading in Haaretz yesterday, though, uh, that one account uh, suggesting that this is the end. This is the end game for Likud and for Netanyahu and for the hyper-militarised approach and uh, using some sort of historical examples of that, the way uh, Labor uh, fell, I think it was... Um, might have even been in the 1960s. So we, we shall see. Uh, this, the, you're quite right. Uh, there are 
domestic political uh, um, elements here that are too easily simplified simplified as well, but um, uh, things need to change. And there are forces within Israel. I was I was thinking of Ami Ayalon, for example, former uh, head of Shin Bet, the National uh, Security Service, former head of commander in chief of the Navy, uh, also a former Labor MP, as I understand it. Uh, but he was saying he, he, he thinks the only way this is going to be resolved now is if the international community enforces a settlement on Israel that he he he's sort of calling on the US and France and the Arab states to come together and to enforce a um, a settlement and he believes that Israelis more broadly uh, would be prepared to accept this if they could get rid of their government uh, that's a view from inside and it's a view from someone with extraordinary bona fides as a a security uh, official so i think you know, it, it has at least the attraction of some sort of possible future that isn't just a constant cycle of violence begetting violence, which is what we see at the moment. We're right out of time. Um, thanks again, Ben. It's been really terrific talking to you, and uh, I hope uh, our listeners have uh, uh, gained a great deal from it, as I have. Thank you so much, Ben. Um, I think that's a really useful contribution to the debate to unpick these these abstract concepts. Thanks to both of you, and great to, great to be with you. Until next week, bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 